Please turn with me to Psalm 19. We'll read verse 7 to 14. Psalm 19, verse 7 to 14. Let me remind you that this is the word of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In giving them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The 19th century English poet, playwright and novelist Thomas Hardy, uh, in a play called the Dynasts wrote these words about God, the dreaming, dark, dumb thing that turns the handle of this idol show. It was very contemporary of his day to um, have that view of God. Maybe we could just keep those words up for a little bit longer, if you don't mind, Corin. It's, it's really a deistic worldview of God. It's the view that God has, uh, he, there is a God, and he has made the universe, and he's wound it up, and he's thrown it into space, and it's ticking down, and he's kind of turned his back on it and busy with other things. It's the view that says that God is not knowable. And it really is a fitting description of the way that many people understand God today. It's still, although it was written over 100 years ago, it's still a relevant view um, in our culture, in our society. Most people, I think, most reasonable people, I think, believe or suspect that there is a God, some, somebody with power, somebody responsible for cranking history along. Uh, but for Hardy and for many others in our own generation, this God is remote, he's unrelated to us, he's disinterested in us, and above all, he's unknowable. So even if he's there, essentially, practically, he's irrelevant because you can't really know him. He's obscure, He's hidden, and we can't relate to a dreaming dark thing. But above all, he is dumb, according to this view. Whatever God it is, it does not speak. It does not communicate with us. It does not tell us what it is like or who or what it is. It has been struck dumb, the God of Thomas Hardy, a silent God, and when you think about it, actually, if that is true about God, then he is subhuman because he can't even speak like we can. In fact, even chimpanzees have got a vocabulary of 400 words, but not the God of Thomas Hardy, for he is dumb. But of course, uh, many in our world today claim, don't they, to speak for God. And there is a big problem for who speaks for God. 
It's worth saying that many in our country who say that they believe the Bible to be God's word, when it's taught or read in a way that is understandable and open, well, they're very selective about which bits they accept. I remember a few years ago on the campus of the University of KZN, we wandered around with clipboards doing a little bit of a survey and asking the students a couple of questions. Question number one, do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Do you know what the score was? 90% of the students said yes, without even hesitating. I doubt you'd have that result at UCT. But at UKZN, that was the result. 90% said, and then I showed them John 3.36. I said, do you believe that this is God speaking? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. About 40% agreed that that was the word of God. What a, it's a real disconnect, isn't it? 90% said the Bible is God's word. Then I read the Bible to them and 40% said that's not God's word. And my guess is, is that that is reflective in many ways and perhaps in varying proportions to our context and our culture. There are many who claim to speak for God. Many religions claim to have God's words in some form or another. It is our contention this morning that the Bible is the best and the most demonstrable contender for that claim. When the Bible goes against our culture, when the Bible disagrees with the way that we have been raised in our family, when the Bible goes against our own desires for various things, it's easy to set aside the Bible or to be selective with what you accept from the Bible. But it doesn't work like that. I want us to see three things uh, that we hold to be true. And if you are an inquirer or a guest this morning, can I say how welcome you are and how glad we are that you're here? I'd like to respectfully challenge you to consider these three points. Number one, God's words have been perfectly preserved. You know, at the, very, uh, at the very least, even if you aren't a Bible believer, you do have to acknowledge that the Bible is unique. Uh, it's unlike any other book that has ever been written. It was written over 15, consider these things, written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors from all different kinds of walks of life, some shepherds, some farmers, some fishermen, some scholars, some kings, some peasants. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, on three different continents. Uh, that is uh, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And yet, there is a continuity of theme, and there is agreement on central subject and we would argue there are no contradictions. It is the book that in history has been most censored and persecuted and burnt, and yet it survives and outsells all of the bestseller lists in the world. It's not even, it's not even contained anymore on the bestseller lists because it is in a category all of its own. The Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book in history. The Encyclopedia Britannica says by 1966, the whole Bible had appeared in 240 languages and dialects, and one or more whole books of the Bible 
in 739 additional languages. There's no other book that can make those claims. It's utterly unique in the world of books. But you might want to ask the question, who decided what to accept? Why are there 66 books in the Bible and not 86 books in the Bible? What about the Apocrypha, which you may have heard of? Those other books, the Pseudepigrapha, that's a good word to throw into conversation later, by the way, over lunch. What about those ancient writings? Why were they excluded from the Bible? And there's a lot that needs to be said about that, but let me just briefly say that that question arises out of the view that the Bible is a product of man rather than of God. Uh, many would claim that the church created the Bible and that it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. Uh, history has never had a definitive version of the Bible, many would say. It's claimed that the modern Bible was compiled and edited by men with a political agenda to promote the divinity of the man Jesus Christ and to use his influence for their own power base. The truth is, though, friends, that the early church did not compile, did not create the Bible and tell people that it was the word of God. What they did was they simply recognized those books which had always been believed to be the word of God from the first disciples, many of whom authored those books, and the early church simply put them together in one volume. There is no evidence from history uh, that they attempted to conceal certain books and exclude others. Those other books uh, in the Apocrypha and in the Pseudepigrapha weren't accepted because they are so obviously not in the same league as the books in the Bible. And, and so they ought not to be included in the Bible. They're on a different level. And you can go and read them for yourself. I've read the Apocrypha, and it's so clearly not Scripture. There's a book in the Apocrypha called Bell and the Dragon, which is really Harry Potter. And it's so clearly not scripture. It's very different in style and in authority. I wonder if you remember a few years ago, I can't remember exactly which year it was, a minor storm was created by National Geographic when they had a whole program on the gospel according to Judas on TV. You may remember that. And, uh, of course, um, the gospel according to Judas, it was portrayed or claimed to have been purposefully overlooked and hidden away by the evil, wicked, power-hungry Christians and gave a totally different understanding of Jesus and his death, an understanding never heretofore heard, and from the perspective of someone who has been demonized and ought to be listened to, poor old Judas. The scholarly community, though, those who study documents of antiquity, were quick to point out that the date of the alleged gospel according to Judas was the third century. Far too late to have been written by Judas, who died mid-first century. Unsurprisingly, National Geographic didn't run a sequel to the gospel according to Judas. Friends, I want to declare to you this morning that the church did not create the Bible. The Bible created the church. 
which is always what God's word does. Whenever he speaks, life comes about. He did that when he created the world. He does that when God's message about Jesus comes into our lives. He creates spiritual life in us. And his word has created the church, the new creation. But is it reliable? Is the Bible reliable? The New Testament is constantly under attack. Its reliability and accuracy are often contested by critics. While many people don't agree with the content of the message of the Bible, there are very few serious scholars who would question that what we hold in our hands this morning is actually what was written. In archaeology, we are in the age of discovery when it comes to, to archaeology, where many every time new finds take place in the Middle East, the Bible is authenticated as having been untampered with. The reliability of the documents are generally not in dispute today. Not many serious scholars dispute that what we hold here is what was written. It doesn't mean they agree with what was written, but they don't generally dispute the accuracy or the provenance of what was written. And it's worth saying, friends, that if the Bible is going to be disregarded, if the New Testament is going to be disregarded, then we must also disregard Plato, Aristotle, and Homer because the New Testament documents are better preserved and more numerous than any other ancient writings. And because they are so numerous, where they can be cross-checked for accuracy and there is a very, very high level of consistency higher than any other documents of antiquity that are studied in our own university here. If we were to compare the number of New Testament manuscripts to other ancient writings, we find that the New Testament manuscripts far outweigh the others in quantity and quality. And so look at that table there. You can just, just a quick comparison shows you that Plato wrote his writings uh, 427 to 347 BC. The earliest copy we've got is 900 AD, 1200 years after it was written, and we have seven extant copies. Compare that to the New Testament, written between 40 and 100 AD. Earliest copy we've got is 125 AD, 20, a mere 25 years after it was written. And there are 5,600 copies that can be cross-checked against each other. It really is in a category of its own. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that it's true. I'm not making that claim just yet. But I want you to understand that at least we can say the Bible is unique, and what we have in our English translations is what was written. It's not been tampered with. Uh, it doesn't make it true, obviously, but it is nevertheless a profound thing and the only book in history that can make those claims. Here's the second thing I want us to understand this morning, and that is that God's words, not only have they been perfectly preserved, but they can be clearly understood. Um, theologians use the word perspicuity of the scriptures. That is, they are like perspex. You can, you can understand the Bible if you read it for yourself. The expectation of the Bible is that it can be read and understood and discussed by ordinary people. 
You don't have to learn an ancient language to understand the Bible. You don't have to become a different culture to understand the Bible. Even children are expected to be able to understand the Bible. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 6. Never forget these commands that, get, that I give you today. Teach them to your children. Repeat them when you are at home and when you are away and when you are resting and when you are working. The Bible is so clear that even the simple can understand it rightly and be made wise by it. And so Psalm 19, which Dieter read for us earlier, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. It gives new strength. The commands of the Lord are trustworthy, giving wisdom to those who lack it, to the simple. It's common for people to tell us how hard it is to interpret the Bible and that there's so many different interpretations which must prove that the Bible can't be trusted. Now, let's be honest about this. Obviously, we know and have to acknowledge that the Bible has been misused and abused to support lots of different views, and we of all people in this country ought to be aware of that. Our own history as a country shows that the Bible was used and appealed to to support both apartheid on the one hand and the armed struggle on the other. The fact that the Bible has been misused by people, can I suggest to you, says more about people than it does about the Bible. You can make the Bible say anything. Psalm 14 verse 1, there is no God. In the Bible. But, but you've got to read the rest of, of the verse. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's easy to twist the Bible. It's not because the Bible is has got this vast range of meanings and is open to massive differences of interpretation, it has to do with twisting the Bible, which of course can happen to any book. The truth is, dear friends, that the Bible does not need to be interpreted. It is an interpretation itself. It just needs to be explained. Can I illustrate this for you? In, in Romans 5, um, and verse 8, it's not going to be on the screen, There's, there are four words that appear in a sentence that are really instructive to us about how the Bible operates. The four words are, Jesus died for us. Now just think about that for a moment with me and see how that is the Bible interpreting the Bible. Oh, there it is. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> Christ died for us. Christ died is an historical fact that took place in the first century. But what does it mean? Well, can you see that Paul adds those words for us after the historical fact to interpret the historical fact for us? What is the significance of Christ's death? Well, he died for us. And if you read the context, it becomes clear that what he means by that is Christ died in our place instead of us dying. Christ died. Okay? Now, I haven't interpreted the Bible for you there. I've just explained the interpretation that is embedded in that verse. And that really is the task of the Bible teacher and the preacher. If words mean anything at all, <coughs> there is a right and a wrong way to understand them. It's striking when Jesus, whenever, when, whether he's speaking to scholars or to common people who are untrained, 
his responses always assume that the blame for misunderstanding any teaching of the Bible is not the Bible, but on those who misunderstand or fail to accept what is written. Again and again, Jesus answers questions and with statements like, Have you not read? Have you not read? Don't you know your Bibles? We're going to start a series in John next week. JP is going to kick that off for us. And uh, there are some extraordinary statements made there by Jesus about the Old Testament that he thinks his opponents ought to have understood. For the Bible can't mean a million different things. It has one meaning. The problem is not the Bible. The problem is us. For the Bible is clear. And Bible-believing Christians agree on 99.9% of what the Bible is saying, and the 0.1% doesn't change the central message of the Bible at all. It has to do with irrelevant things, like how much water do you need to baptize somebody? Do they have to be dunked, or can you just sprinkle the water on their forehead? Well, that's not going to change the core message of the Bible, is it? Well, what kind of music can we have in church? Can we swing from the chandeliers when we sing? Or should we remain seated and sing from a book quietly to, the, to an organ in the background? You know, it doesn't matter. Those things are irrelevancies. Uh, we're still waiting for an organ donor, this church. <coughs> but let, let's move on. Why speak through a book? <coughs> what, what is the best way to reveal yourself to everyone reliably in a way that transcends Time and geography and culture. Write it down. Have the events of your coming in person reliably recorded. If you were to do that, then it would be available for all time, across all culture and languages, for all people to read about and to believe. Because of the Bible, Christianity is the only religion I've said this before, where you don't have to change your language or your culture. The Bible adapts to your language. That is why missionaries have given themselves to the translation of the Bible from the original languages. Christianity does not require you to become a different culture before you can be a Christian. There are other religions where that is true. If you want to become a Muslim, you've got to become an Arab. You've got to learn Arabic to really hear God speak as you read the Quran. You've got to change your diet and your dress, and you've got to face the East when you pray. But not Christianity. Christianity has leapfrogged cultures and geographical regions and times and language. In the previous church that I served at, we supported a missionary who took 15 years to translate into Kimwani, a language spoken by a minority tribe in Mozambique, the Gospel of Mark. Just one gospel, it took 15 years. Because Kimwani is a language that is not written. It's an oral language. So she first had to learn the language, which took five years. Then she had to work out how to write the language. <clears throat> and then she had to translate Mark's gospel into the language. And then she had to teach the Kimwani people to read their own language so that they could read the Bible. It took 15 years to do that. 
And in so doing, by the way, she has contributed to the preservation of the Kimwani language and that culture, which is what missionaries, evil, wicked, imperialist missionaries have done all over history and all over the world. I think I've said it before from this pulpit, when I studied Tosa at this university, which was my major, we used a dictionary written by an English missionary in the 1800s, still used in the Tosa faculty when I was here, but that was about 100 years ago now. But friends, you know, missionaries get hard, a hard time of it, but actually they are responsible for the preservation of many languages that would have been obsolete by now had they not learned them and had this passion for people to hear from God in their own language. They don't have to learn Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. They can hear from God in the vernacular. What a unique book. Because of the Bible, many can hear and have heard the wonderful news of Jesus. And because it's written, there is an objective way to know God in black and white. You know, we do not encounter God in nature, friends. You can't encounter God in nature. That is mysticism. We do not encounter God in our imagination. That is magic. And we do not encounter God on the inside of our heads. That is subjective. We encounter God in a book. How gracious of God to have made it something that is external to us so that we can be sure about it, so that it can be objective, external, and reliable. How wonderful that God has spoken through a well-preserved, trustworthy, unique book. Here's my third and final heading this morning. His words lead to life. You know, words are the deepest expression, aren't they, of who we are. We use gestures to express or to reveal who we are. We use facial expressions and body language. But words are the most powerful things in the world today. Whether spoken or written, words are the most powerful things we possess because with words, we can open ourselves up completely to others. Words reveal the insides of people, the heart of people. And the Bible, the only accurate record of Jesus' words and actions, brings the knowledge of God to the world. It reveals the innermost person of God to us today. He can be known, contrary to Thomas Hardy. Jesus is God speaking to us. And the record of Jesus is therefore God speaking to us today. Jesus came to express the innermost person of God to us in a way that we could understand. Jesus explains who God is because Jesus doesn't only speak the words of God, but Jesus is the word of God. He is God's living word revealed to us today by an accurate record so that we too, though we didn't live in the days of Jesus, may know God in a personal and an intimate way today. Jesus 
is God opened up to us, God revealed to us. And his words require a response. We're going to start a series in John next week. We're going to do John 5 to 10. The weakness of my talk today is that it's a talk about the Bible. It's much better to preach the Bible. And we're starting that next week, and I hope you won't miss that. Somebody once asked C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, could you please defend the Bible for us? To which he famously replied, defend the Bible, I'd sooner defend a lion. It's a good point, that. Today, I'm defending the lion. I'm giving you an apologetic for why I think you should read the Bible. But next week's going to be much better. JP's going to preach John 5. And then you're going to hear God speak. And the Bible requires, and God requires no defense. But look at uh, John's Gospel, the purpose of John's Gospel, chapter 20 and verse 30. Look at what Jesus says. Sorry, not Jesus, John, the author of John's Gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Your attitude, friends, to God's written word has an eternal consequence. And so I don't know what your attitude is to the Bible this morning, but the Bible is not like any other book. It doesn't matter what your attitude is to any other book, but your attitude to the Bible has an eternal consequence. For if you accept it, it will lead to life, eternal life, the message contained in the Bible. If you reject it, well, you are turning your back on eternal life. It's not true of any other book. There's nothing more important than your response to the words of God contained and recorded for us in the Bible. That is, the way you treat the Bible is the way you are treating God. Just like when my children disobey my words, I take it personally. For it is my words and it is me as a person that they are making a response to. And so it is with God. The way we treat the Bible is the way we are treating God. Now, if you are a Bible believer, that's challenging in and of itself because it might be a long time since you've read the Bible. You've neglected God. Or you sit lightly on God, maybe. For others, it'll be, well, I've, I've never really encountered God in the Bible. It is by believing what is written that you will have life in the name of Jesus. Believing that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was one sent from God, believing that his death was necessary for the forgiveness of sins, believing that he rose again after he died, proving that everything he said about himself was true, believing and accepting and submitting to the Lord of death, who therefore is also the Lord of life. 
the only legitimate response to the written word of God is to put your full weight on it and to believe it and to trust what it's telling you about God and about Jesus and about how to be right with God. And so the written word is watertight evidence that God wants to be friends with you and went to the trouble of revealing himself to us through his Son, accurately recorded for us in the Scriptures. I wonder if you'll take time to investigate it. I love this verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Now look, some of you may not be ready to do that. You might not be ready to take what I think is a very logical step and trust the Bible. But you might be willing to explore it further, and we would love to help you with that. If you'd like to read the Bible with somebody or talk further about some of the things that have been raised, we would love to, you to get in touch with us. Please do that. You can do it by speaking to me personally or by emailing the office or by filling in a connect form this morning at the table. It might be, though, that there are others here, either physically or on Zoom virtually, who are ready to accept the word about Jesus being from God, ready to put their trust uh, in the one who is the center of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is you, then I've got a prayer for you to say this morning that I've written. Look at the prayer. It says, Dear God, thank you that you're a God who speaks today. Thank you for Jesus who reveals you perfectly. Help me to accept him on his terms and help me to get to know him through the written account. That might be your prayer this morning, and I'm going to give you a moment to pray that privately in your own heart. Will you bow your heads with me now, close your eyes, and I'm going to say that prayer phrase by phrase, and it might be that somebody wants to make it their own prayer today. Dear God, thank you that you are a God who speaks today. Thank you for Jesus who reveals you perfectly. Help me to accept him on his terms. And help me to get to know him through the written account. Amen.